You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm not going to have you stand uh, tonight as we get started. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're not going to have you stand, sorry, not standing tonight. And uh, like I said earlier, uh, this is going to be a little different this evening, and I hope that, that uh, you'll bear with me. Um, I sometimes, you know, I normally, I typically preach um, expositionally, and uh, meaning that I kind of take a passage and I... And I go through the passage and try to find my main point in the passage and the, and the subpoints in the passage. Uh, I'm not quite as seasoned enough to alliterate everything, where everything starts with the same letter, down to the sub-sub-subpoints, which I've heard some preachers do. Um, but uh, that's typically my approach, as you've seen. But tonight really will admittedly be more of a topical-type message. And uh, that's not typically how I, how I work, but... Uh, I just felt like the Lord was sending me in this direction, and, uh, and when that happens, then I'm, I'm not going to argue with, with what happens tonight. So, um, just looking forward to bringing some things out. Um, this is really more of a, a very, this is a very personal message. And in reality, it's almost a, me- a message of testimony. And, and not really my testimony. This is a testi- testimony of a man named George Scott. And as many of you know, our family spent the first part of the week at the funeral, and, and this man uh, for whom the funeral was held, his name's George Scott, he uh, was 67 years old, and a, a week ago, uh, on the 30th of December, he had a stroke. And it was a surprise to everyone, uh, because he was in, in good health as a 67-year-old, strong, had no obvious health needs or health problems. And uh, had a stroke, and uh, there was just a, there was just too much bleeding, and and they weren't able to uh, to pull him through, and he died the next day on New Year's Eve, December thirty first. Um, he was a longtime church member there at Bible Baptist Church in Stillwater, where our family came from, and and they invited us uh, to be involved in the service. They had Aaron come and sing, which that's about as cruel of a thing as you can ask somebody to do to come and sing at a funeral. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do, but she was a champion, so she did a great job and, and held it together, which I'm thankful for. And, uh, and then I was able to lead songs, and then uh, I read the obituary as well. It was, it was a special service, uh, because if you've ever met George Scott, then you know he was a special person. He was one of those unique, one-of-a-kind kind of people, and a lot of people would say that. Um, yeah, I think if you met George Scott, you would definitely uh, be of that persuasion. He was perhaps the most influential church member in that congregation. And, and I'm not trying to set standards or, or, or compare among ourselves. I hope that you'll understand my heart tonight is not to say, well, he was the best at this or best at that. But in terms of influence, uh, there's probably not anybody there at the church even that would argue with the statement that he was probably the most influential church member in that congregation, and honestly, one of the most influential church uh, laymen I've, I've ever observed. Uh, he was not on staff, he was not paid by the church, um, but as a sign of his influence, 
um, they, there were almost 800 people at the funeral, which is a large, a large funeral, a large number of people. Um, that's a sign of the influence. There are lines of cars uh, dry, you know, to come in. It was time for the funeral to start. There's still a line of cars coming into the parking lot. And at, when the funeral was, it was time to start, lines of people waiting to get into the building. And Brother George uh, shooed horses for a living. Uh, he was a farrier. And uh, you can imagine how strong of a man he was at 67 to still be spending every day, all day, under a horse or under multiple horses. That's what he did for a living. So he was doing that even up to the time of his death. And that's why it was such a shock to people because he seemed so strong. And, and as a glimpse into the kind of man he was, though, let me just explain a little background and then we'll get into uh, some things about him. He was an extremely strong person, but he was also one of the most tender-hearted men I've ever known. He actually called himself a crybaby. That was his term for himself. Um, because if, if, you ever were, if you ever saw him, now again, 67 years old, large cowboy mustache. He wore bright boots, and he tucked his jeans inside of his boots. And, um, and he, would just, he never had a normal tie on. I don't, know what, I don't know what kind of ties they were. I was never manly enough to wear one. So um, handkerchiefs, and I mean, he was a real cowboy. Uh, I always said he was born about 150 years too late because that's the, just the kind of guy that he was. But he would give a testimony in our testimony services at times, and he would cry through the whole testimony. Um, he would give a devotion to the men at men's prayer meeting, for instance, and he would, he would bawl like a baby the whole time. So he was as strong of a, as a man as there was in our church, but he was also as tender-hearted as any man that I've ever honestly been around. My first memory of George Scott was at Bible College. As a freshman, I uh, went to school in Southern California for a couple of years to start Bible College training. And, and there's a group, of, they call it uh, the men's group. It's a singing group and a, a lot of cowboys in that group. Um, they would travel around literally all over the states to different places and sing. And somehow they allowed me into that group when I went there and I didn't even have a pair of boots. So... Um, you were, I thought it was required to wear boots, but, you know, I never did. So um, I was able to be in, in that group with them and spend time. But before I ever was even in the church, as a Bible college freshman, George Scott and this group of men came to our college. And here's this big cowboy from Oklahoma with a giant mustache and bright red boots with his jeans tucked inside his boots. And he's up there, first of all, just standing there singing. That's a statement in itself. You know, for a man that, that is that manly, you, to stand there and sing, you know, you couldn't help but stare and watch him just because it just seems like such a contrast. But not only that, but I remember they were singing a song called The Judgment. And uh, it's a, an emotional song and it's about um, the last judgment. And, and it, halfway through that song, Brother George broke down and tears were streaming down his face, just pouring down his face as they sang this song, The Judgment. And I'll never forget, uh, halfway through the song, and I really believe a large part was due to him being so emotional about the song, um, floods of students started to respond to the, to the song. While the song was going, they were responding at the altar. And, and it was just an incredible moment, and he had probably the largest part to do with that service. I've never met such a contrast of what appeared to be such a man's man and yet such a tender heart. 
And I know it's different, but tonight I, I want to highlight some things about Brother George that made him as influential as he was. And, and he wouldn't want me to, and my, my intention is not to lift him up in an inordinate kind of way, except that I, I think tonight is almost a little bit like a funeral message, minus the emotion, because we didn't, you didn't know him. But there are things about him that I think that we could learn from and you might say, well, why would you do something like that? It seems like you're lifting up a man. Well, it is though scriptural to look to others who have provided examples of how to live for Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul told the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 17, he said, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example." He said, look, he, first he said, be, brethren, be followers together of me. And then he said, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. So he was literally saying, in, in case you think it's not scriptural to go this direction, Paul said, follow me, be a follower of me. And not only that, the ones that walk like me, mark them too. And that word mark means to look at or keep your eyes on and Paul is saying, keep your eyes on the believers who live for Christ. And he's saying, you should follow God. In the end, you're serving God. You're doing what you do for God and to God. But he was encouraging them to follow others that were following God. Because sometimes, honestly, it is difficult sometimes to picture what it's supposed to look like if I didn't have the example of my dad growing up to see what it was supposed to look like. So it's not unscriptural for us to follow a man as long as that man is providing an example of following Christ. In the end, we follow God, but very often the face of who we follow is in the form of our dad or an uncle or a best friend or your mother or a sister or a close friend or a longtime church member here at Eastside Baptist Church. A lot of times that's the face. So I want to mention a few things about George Scott that I think we could mark. Because remember, Paul said, mark them. So tonight, if I'm giving it a title, I'm calling it Marks of a Man Who Made a Difference. Marks of a Man Who Made a Difference. And let me just give a disclaimer, too. These aren't the only marks. These are not the only marks. I, I'll be giving you a few marks, but there are many more that I could have chosen. But the first... Mark number one is, Brother George was faithful. He was faithful. You know, part of his obituary read this. George was also the embodiment of faithfulness. He was faithful to his church. He was faithful to his family. And most importantly, he was faithful to the Lord. And honestly, that's the first word that came to my mind. Uh, you know how you can be, sometimes at a funeral... Uh, you can all, almost gloss over some things that everybody knew about somebody. But this was one of those funerals that there was no glossing over. Everything that was said about him was genuine and sincere. He was faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2 is where we're at. We're going to be turning to a few passages tonight. Again, with the topical approach, we'll be doing some flipping. But it says, 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. You know, faithful means uh, trusty, one who can be relied on. Brother George was one of the most faithful people that I've ever observed when it came to the Lord. Uh, he was there every service on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And at the church in Stillwater, they also have what they call men's prayer meetings. So 
at 7 o'clock on Sunday morning. Um, every Sunday morning, there will be 90 to 100 men that gather to pray for the day together. And in Brother George, uh, in his mind, that was, that was almost the most important meeting of the week for him. He was there every time I can remember unless he was out of town or unless he was sick. I honestly can't remember when he missed. It was that important to him to not just be at Sunday morning service, but if there's a prayer service, he was going to be at the prayer service too. And every special meeting we have. I was, I, every men's group uh, practice, every Monday night, the men's group of that church met for about two hours on Monday night to practice music. Every week. And Brother George was there without fail every Monday that I can remember unless he was out of town. I don't remember him just not showing up to a men's, to a men's group practice. I was his choir director for over 15 years. I cannot remember one time that he missed a choir or service or a choir practice that he didn't call me beforehand or text me beforehand or tell me beforehand that he was going to be gone. And, and I say that because uh, if, you're, if you're in a regular position of service and there's someone that you answer to or someone that you would be accountable to, I think it's a great practice for you to let someone know when you're not going to be in your place. And I think it's just one of those things that it comes with just being responsible and it comes, it's kind of like that's one of those baseline type of things that if you're involved in something and you're faithful to something normally and you're going to miss, you're going to let someone know. Brother George was very good about that. Now, understand, faithfulness doesn't mean that you never miss. It just means that when you do miss, two things happen. Number one, it surprises people. See, faithful people are so predictable, and that sounds boring, but I'm telling you, as a pastor, I appreciate more and more faithful people. I'm not looking for flashy. I'm not looking for somebody that comes in and changes everything up and and is charismatic about things and and has a great strong personality and everybody follows and laughs at. Um, To me, if you will have the baseline of faithfulness, you are doing well in God's eyes. Just faithful to everything. And it should surprise people when you miss something. People should think, wow, where are they? Because they just don't ever miss. And if they do miss, I know about it. So number one, it surprises people. But number two, if you're faithful and you miss, you should let someone know that you're not going to be there. You know, part of being faithful is consistency. Uh, Brother George was the same way everywhere he went. Everywhere. Church was not a show for him. Never once did I hear about or observe something about Brother George doing something or saying something inconsistent with his testimony. And that's a big thing to say. Not once can I remember that. What helped him be so faithful or so consistent? Well, here's, here's what I truly believe, knowing him personally, is that his identity was primarily in Jesus Christ. See, similar to what I preached Sunday morning, he, uh, that message for me to live is Christ, what's in the middle of your wagon wheel. George's identity as a Christian affected every role in his life, every spoke coming off the hub of his wagon wheel as a husband, as a father, as a church member, as a friend, as a farrier. He was who he was wherever he went because his identity was Jesus Christ. See, when you find your identity in Jesus Christ, consistency just happens. You don't have to pretend to be something you're not. You don't have to you know, put on a certain face. If your identity is first about your relationship with Christ, you will be who you are everywhere you go. You will just be who you are. From his obituary, uh, George, it says this, George was not a part-time Christian. 
His private devotion was every bit as genuine and consistent as his public service. Those who knew him best spoke often of his prayers and spiritual leadership. If those who know you best, what would they speak about you? You know the best part about being faithful. Do you know? It's not just that, well, you know, I'm faithful, look at me. No. The best part about being faithful is that God blesses it. Proverbs 28, 20 says, A faithful man shall abound with blessings. See, the Old Testament word for faithful means firmness. It means steadiness. It means steadfast. God rewards those who are steady. Not just rewards them, but makes them, according to Proverbs 28, 20, he makes them abound with blessings. And if you've ever met a blessed man, it was George Scott. When you consider that principle, it's not surprising. Because God makes you be blessed with abundant blessings when you're faithful. The second mark, you know, the mark of a man that made a difference is that, and they're not all alliterated, just don't get excited about the first two, okay? Mark two is that he was a family man. He was a family man. Brother George's consistency was evident in his home. Um, We're going to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and look at a couple things here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll read it here in just a moment, but Brother George's consistency was all through his life, but especially in his home. Uh, he had a very strong marriage and a strong relationship with his, lo- with his wife. Her name is Charlotte, which if you think about her, would you pray for her? Uh, because no, those of you who have lost a spouse, you know what it's like in the days and weeks after. And, and just pray for Charlotte, if you would. But he had a strong marriage. He display- displayed Christ's love in how he treated his wife. He raised three girls, which is funny, too, as a strong cowboy. Uh, he, all he had was girls, and I... I think it always bothered him just a little bit, but I, don't, I guarantee he wouldn't trade his relationship with those girls for anything. Uh, you should have seen how much he loved them. I'm, they all grew up to love the Lord and serve God. One of them married a pastor who's a very good friend of mine. One daughter um, and her husband, they serve very faithfully. They met at Bible college. They serve very faithfully at a church. Their third daughter, uh, just last year, she, she had battled cancer for years, and she died about a year ago, left two little boys and uh, was it, But she was a faithful Christian, uh, herself loved the Lord, actively involved in church. I bring up Brother George's family tonight because it was one of the biggest qualifications for him as a leader at Bible Baptist Church. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, he was a longtime deacon at Bible Baptist Church. And when he was in between terms, because they would do the two years on, one year off, every time when his one year off was coming, to an end, he was, the, he was the, about the first person mentioned on every ballot as a nomination. He was that kind of a guy. He was the guy that everyone said he needs to be a deacon again. And that had as much to do with, that much to do with his testimony. But his family was his primary qualification as a deacon, or one of his primary qualifications. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says, verse 8, Likewise must the deacons be grave or serious, not double-tongued. In other words, they're sincere. They're not saying one thing to others and then a different thing when they're not around those same people. Verse 8 again, not given to much wine. That one's pretty clear. Not greedy of filthy lucre. That one's pretty clear. They're not in it for money and greed. 
Verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And they're the men of faith. They're a man of conscience. They have a clean conscience. Verse 10, let these also first be proved. They should be proven. They should have a testimony that you can look back to. They've proven themselves. And then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. But look at this. About a deacon in verse 11. Even so must their wives be grave or serious about the Lord. Uh, Not slanderers. That means they're not backbiters. They're not criticizing others. They're sober. Again, serious. Faithful. Even their wife must be faithful in all things. Verse 12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. And we could get into that. We're not going to tonight. I believe it means that a deacon ought to have only been married once. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. You know, one of the qualifications to be a deacon in in a New Testament church is that your home is in order. That your wife is a certain way and that your children are a certain way. That's a requirement to be a deacon. A deacon can be disqualified from serving if his wife or children don't have a good testimony. And I know that seems pretty hard, but Paul's the one that wrote it, so I'm just going based on what he said. It's very clear that a deacon is disqualified if his wife or children aren't a certain way. And let me just encourage you tonight. Brother George was a man who fit this qualification. He passed it with flying colors because his wife and his children were the kind of wife and children that any godly person would want. And I want to encourage you men who wonder how one becomes a deacon to consider 1 Timothy chapter 3 in your own life. And I, don't, I think it'd be, it's probably accurate for us to say, and maybe it's true in every church, but we meet, need more qualified deacons at Eastside Baptist Church. We need more men that would say, uh, I am not willing to sit below a standard. I want to rise above the standard. And if it means studying this passage and examining yourself to see if you're one of the men that has these qualifications, I, I would say that'd be good for every man in our church. I mean, live like a deacon and maybe someday when it comes time uh, for you to be nominated, then maybe you're ready to be a deacon. No, they, Brother George was a longtime deacon and it was because he was a family man. If he had not uh, paid attention to his wife or raised his children well, he would have been disqualified. Mark number three of a man that makes a difference is he had a great spirit. Mark number three, Brother George Scott had a great spirit. From his obituary, it says this. George was friendly and personable. He never met a stranger, and even if you'd only just met him, he made you feel like he'd known you forever. He used that special ability to build relationships to influence others for Christ. You know, there was something about George that drew you to him. And here's just some of the things that I think were, were part of the reason people were drawn to him. Number one, he was quick to smile. Quick to smile. I have to remind myself sometimes to smile. But Brother George was quick to smile. And he smiled at you with his eyes because his mustache hit his mouth. Maybe he wasn't smiling. I don't know. But you could tell something was going on. Maybe he was just... But he, he was smiling at you. Quick to smile. He had a welcoming countenance. He had an approachable countenance. Even as a man's man, he was the kind of guy you wouldn't feel intimidated to walk up to. Uh, he was able to have a good time. He was able to enjoy life. I could sure tell you some stories, spending time with him. Uh, you could definitely say he had a merry heart, and that's similar to the messages we looked at a couple of weeks ago out of Proverbs 17. 
Not only that, he had a great spirit because he was extremely humble and he was servant-minded. Even though he's a man who in that church had faithfully served for about 45 years. But as a, as, as a man who had earned it, he was not above it. As a man who had been around for a long time, you would find him every Sunday morning, uh, right after men's prayer meeting, uh, you would find him out in front of the church with a broom sweeping off the welcome mats. Nobody asked him to do it. It probably should have been a staff member's job, and they missed it. But he started doing it years ago, and he did it every Sunday morning. He was not above it, even though he had earned the respect. He was a humble and servant-minded, and even though, uh, you know, think about Jesus Christ. Here's a, he was a humble servant, and yet, I mean, if anybody had earned glory and the, and, the, and the praise and worship of mankind, it's Jesus Christ deserves it, and yet he wasn't above washing the apostles' feet. You know, Brother George was not critical. And I, I, have a t- I mean, I can be critical sometimes and, and be critical about things, and, and yet here's Brother George, a layman in the church who had earned it, and yet even with leadership, even leadership younger than him, I mean, I was much younger than him. I was young enough to be his son, and yet inquire never once did I find criticism from him, even though I guarantee he didn't always agree with everything I said or did. In men's group, when I was leading the men's group practice, not once was there ever a criticism from him. He always had a humble spirit, and if they, something needed to be said, he would do it in the kind of way that, that made you think that he loved you. He was not a critical person. He was supportive of leadership. I mean, if it's a, it's a sign of someone trusting God uh, in his divine plan for your life, when you willingly submit to the leadership that he's placed in your life, whether or not you agree with everything that goes on, whether or not you, you like everything that goes on, and even if something rubs you the wrong way, and I'm not trying to lift myself up, I mean, I know there are things that we don't always agree on everything, but it's a sign that you trust God's sovereignty if you're simply willing to submit to the leadership he's placed over your life. If you believe that God has you at Eastside Baptist Church at this time, and I believe that God has me at, this, at Eastside Baptist Church at this time, if that's the case, then, then part of having an excellent spirit is unless something's doctrinal or immoral or unethical, there are times where you just submit. You know, and, and I'm thankful for that spirit. It's a blessing. Brother George exemplified it. And I watched him exemplify it in his life. He had joy in Christ and kindness toward others. You don't have to have a charismatic or outgoing or loud personality to have a spirit that's attractive. If you're right with God, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit in you that draws people to him. Galatians 5.22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. If you let God do the work in you and you're right with him, he creates the fruit in you that is attractive to other people. You don't have to go out and try to have a good attitude. No, if you're right with God, then he creates something in you that draws other people to him through you. So what I'm saying is be what you're supposed to be and the Holy Spirit will produce in you the kind of spiritual attraction that others will both want to be around and emulate. Part of his obituary read, the scriptures say the tongue of the wise is health. And this was his specialty. He constantly offered encouragement to the hurting, exhortation to the weary, and kind instruction to the wayward. 
Brother George's spirit often came out in the words that he spoke. The things that he said. He went out of his way to speak to people. And honestly, there were times where he would just be kind, but there were times where I would hear him confront somebody, a younger man, about, about something in a loving way. And that was his way also of showing love. Is that he was willing to deal with things that sometimes other people were not, but he did it always with a spirit An excellent spirit of humility. Mark number four, he was a giver. Mark number four, he was a giver. In his obituary, it reads this, many will remember him as the consummate giver. Thoughtful and generous, he was always there in the hour of need. I can't tell you how many times George Scott walked up to me around camp time or camp fundraiser time with a $100 bill or two or more, and would give them to me and say, apply it to somebody's camp bill that doesn't have the money. And he never once asked, put my name on it. No, he wanted to be anonymous because he just wanted to be a blessing. I can't tell you how many times he came up and gave me money for someone else, not just a teenager or young people, and said, I, I know they're struggling, I know they're hurting in this area, I just want to be a blessing, and so here you go. And you might say, you might be tempted to say, well, it's probably because he was rich. Well, I don't know how much, I, how much uh, farriers make these days. I'm sure he, he, he made enough to survive and had a good living, but I can guarantee you he was not wealthy. And a lot of people will say, well, to do that kind of stuff, you have to be rich. You have to be rich to be a giver. No, George was not rich. See, most people think you give out of abundance. This is an important lesson. I hope you'll get it tonight. Most people think that you give out of abundance, but that's not the case. See, you give out of love. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave. And see, it's not about how much you have to give. Love doesn't consider the cost and benefit analysis. Love doesn't consider whether or not you can afford it. You don't give because you have. You give because you love. And the second thing about giving is that when you give sacrificially, God blesses abundantly. Luke chapter 6 says, Given it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. So in reality, most of us have it backwards. Because according to that verse, the abundance comes after you give. So you don't first, well, if there's abundance and therefore I give. No, you give out of love. And the way that God works is then he provides the abundance which is the opposite of what you'll hear in any financial seminar out there. Most people say if you've, you know, that it starts with what you've got, but no, God turns it into something miraculously. I don't even know how he does it, but he does it. Don't give out of abundance. Don't let that be your mindset. Give out of love. And you say, well, I can't give very much. Yeah, but everybody can give sacrificially. We all can. You know, God's just happened to be his son. But ours might be something far less, would be something far less than that. But consider how your view of giving affects your giving. It's not about abundance, it's about love and sacrificial giving. Do you look at giving like it's a blessing or a burden? Because if you stop and you analyze everything, and there are some in here in this room, I guarantee, that gave sacrificially to the, the church in Flandreau. Around Christmas time, We've got presents to buy. 
I mean, there's all kinds of things. We're hosting people. We're traveling. We're trying to you know, save for this or that. It's tight this time of year. And yet, we're asking to give sacrificially to a cause somewhere else that doesn't really even affect us. I, I know that people gave sacrificially. I know that. We can't, though, focus on what we're losing when we give. We have to focus on what is gained. And it may not return to your pocketbook, but if you're meeting a need sacrificially, then you're gaining God's favor and you're gaining his blessings. So in the end, your pocketbook, your wallet may not be any thicker, but your rewards in heaven are. In the end, you gain more than you lose. Be a giver. Mark number five, Brother George, and I'll hurry through these last few. Mark number five, Brother George, was a witness. See, Brother George rarely came to organize visitation. And in a lot of churches, that's like the worst thing you can do. If you don't come to organize visitation, you're, you're probably not saved. You know, I'm, I'm kidding, okay? I'm just throwing it out there. You know, there are some churches, they look at it like that. Organized visitation. Well, uh, and I believe that. I believe you ought to come to organize visitation. I, I think it's something that we can improve on. But listen, I've known few, few people that brought more guests to church than George Scott. And he was usually working at visitation time. He was constantly talking about the Lord. Constantly. He was constantly talking about the Lord to everybody that he came across. His love for the Lord was real enough that it was the topic of his conversations, even with the lost. At the funeral this Monday, at the funeral, I personally had multiple people tell me that, that every time they were with George Scott, he talked about Bible Baptist Church. Every time. None of the people that came up to me even were church members. I'd never met any of them before, which means that Brother George talked about the Lord and he talked about the church to people that didn't probably even have much interest in it. They didn't go to our church. They were probably not saved. I, one day, I remember spending one day with him, which I, I wish I would have done it more, but I took a day and I just rode with him in his truck and just went everywhere he went. I watched him shoe horses and just watched the whole process. I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it, I just sat and watched him do it. I wasn't strong enough to do it. Can I be honest? Okay. And he would just, I mean, credible. He was probably 60 at this point and what he was able to do with his strength. And I watched him all day and he's under a horse and he's shooing a horse and the client's there and talking to him. He's under a horse and every single conversation I saw him have with anybody that whole day, he talked about the Lord and he talked about Bible Baptist Church. And he was not doing it just for me. He did it all the time. It was real to him. It was in his heart and came out in his conversation. And it reminds me, and you don't have to turn there, but I'll, you, if you want to write the text down, it reminds me of Matthew 12, 34 and 35. Matthew 12, 34 and 35 says this, Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. You know what will be on your lips uh, if, you're, if God is first in your life? God. If you love your church like you're supposed to and you're that invested and you're that involved and you go around and you're just having a conversation with somebody, they don't even go to your church, what do you think you're going to be talking about? Your church. Because according to Matthew chapter 12, if it's in your heart, it will come out of your lips. So it was not fake for George Scott. It was in his heart. There was, it was real to him. My question to you is then, what is your default topic of conversation? 
Because your default topic of conversation, what you just naturally talk about with other people, is the revealer of what sits on the throne of your heart. And if God rarely comes across in your conversations, then it is likely a sign that He doesn't sit where He's supposed to, on the throne room of your heart. Mark number 6. And this is a big word. He's, George Scott was a perpetuator. And not a perpetrator, okay? Kena gets that. Okay, a perpetuator. You know, to perpetuate is to preserve from extinction or oblivion. That's what to perpetuate means. So um, we believe that God's work through the church has been perpetuated since Jesus Christ walked on it. Uh, we believe, and I mean, you can't, it's hard to trace that all the way back, but by faith, we believe that Jesus Christ started the church while he was here, and ever since then, his church has been somewhere. And we believe in the, that God's work was perpetuated. The New Testament church was. And, and perpetuate means to preserve from extinction. There's always been someone working to, to preserve the extinction of the New Testament church. And there's always been people, Paul was one of them. And after him, there were people generation after generation. A perpetuator is one who preserves something. Brother George took seriously his Christian responsibility to invest in the next generation so as to not to see it die. I often heard him, and I already mentioned this a little bit, I often heard him talking to younger men at our church at Stillwater saying something about, uh, I didn't see it men's prayer meeting this morning. I often, often heard him say something about, what were you, where were you on Wednesday night? You know, he was that kind of a guy. He was doing the things that as a pastor you kind of want to do, but, but you don't want to be overbearing. But he was the guy in the pew sitting with them, and it meant more hearing it from him because he's, he's in the same position. He's the one running out from under a horse at 635 trying to get in his truck and make it to church on time on Wednesday nights. You know, all I have to do is walk from my office. But so people listened to him. He was always, always challenging one of the younger men. He, he had a heart for the younger men to help them to become, because he knew that someday he wouldn't be around and, and in his mind, Bible Baptist Church wasn't going to be the same if there weren't young men that would pick the mantle up from George Scott. You know, and that's true in every church. Uh, and where are the men that will pick up the mantle from, from the men that have come before us here? I mean, where are the young men that say, I will be one of the ones that carries the torch? Well, George Scott had a heart for it. And men in here that are, have been alive for any length of time... Uh, what are we doing to perpetuate the work of God here? I mean, if we're coming in and just doing our thing and going out and we're not even really thinking about who's coming behind us, we're not doing the job that Paul told Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2.2 when he said, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. That, that verse is about perpetuation. Paul's telling Timothy, the things you heard of me, you need to be teaching other faithful men so that someday they'll turn around and they'll teach other faithful men and so on and so on. Paul told Timothy, he said, as a young pastor, Timothy, you have the responsibility to take the things that you learned from me and pass them along. Otherwise, they won't get perpetuated. I mean, it's not just going to happen accidentally. 
Folks, part of our calling as disciples is to perpetuate the gospel by teaching others and modeling the Christian life and investing in the next generation. What are you doing? Who have you influenced in the next generation for Christ? Is anybody coming behind you that you have marks on? Our, a discipleship program wouldn't even be necessary if we as a church family saw it as our individual responsibility uh, to invest in others with the gospel. If our heart was to say, okay, that young person or that person that's just coming in, I have a heart to see them grow and, and have the things that I have, and so I'll take them under my wing. Let's do this. And just on our own, have the initiative to do that. If the perpetuation of the gospel depended on your efforts, would it continue? If the perpetuation of the gospel was dependent on you, how far would it go? The final mark we'll look at tonight is mark number seven. And this one seems kind of strange. It might even seem a little negative, but this is the one that I think is the most significant. Mark number seven of a man that makes a difference. Brother George Scott was limited. You say, that makes absolutely no sense. Well, let me explain it. See, and my pastor brought this out to me while Wayne Hardy, the pastor there, he brought this out to me and he said, you know, none of the things that made George Scott the man he was were natural talents. And that struck me because you don't really think of it that way. You think, well, brother, George is just good at that or good at that or good at this. But when you start to think about the things that made the biggest difference in other people's lives, it wasn't the things he was the best at naturally. Yeah, he was a singer. He sang in the men's group and he sang in the choir. Um, but I, I, we did recordings and I would, I would mix the recordings for the group. And, and when you isolate his mic, he was not the greatest singer. I'm just going to, I'll leave it at that. God somehow blended his voice with all the rest of the basses. But you know what? He worked hard at it. Everywhere he went in his truck, all over the place, all over the state of Oklahoma, he would have the men's group music on his dashboard. I know it's not safe. But he would practice his music driving down the road every day, everywhere he went. Because it wasn't easy for him. It wasn't natural for him. So he put in the extra work to be able to be serviceable and be faithful at it. He was a hard worker. And, and he worked as hard as anybody I knew. His elbow and wrist joints were sore. and his, I mean, his hand, you could just tell. It looked like leather on his hands. But hard work was a choice he made. In other words, that's not just something that just happens. You make a choice. And anybody can do that. That's what I'm saying. And I mentioned all these other traits. You've got faithfulness and consistency and a great spirit and genuineness and uh, being a giver and being a witness and a perpetuator to the next generation. All of them are things, folks. All of those are things that any man can choose to be. All of those are things that any woman can choose to be. Teenagers, every one of you can choose to be faithful. Every one of you can choose to be a giver. Every one of you can choose to have a great spirit. Every one of you can choose to be a perpetuator and take another younger person under your wing and help them to become what they need to be. Every one of you can choose it. And for you to make the biggest difference, it's not about what you're just naturally good at. You make the choice. Any of us can do those things. It means it's not beyond you to be somebody that makes that kind of a difference. God doesn't just use the greatly talented. As a matter of fact, I believe he prefers to use those without much talent because it brings him more glory. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
We're going to start reading in verse 26. Man, these are some great verses. Great truths. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 26. Paul was just reminding them, the Corinthians, of the kind of people God seeks out. He says, For ye see your calling, verse 26, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You know, I mean, just think about what he's saying there. In verse 26, he's saying, uh, not many wise men after the flesh are called, not a lot of mighty men, strong men, not a lot of nobles with crowns on their head. Those aren't the ones that God is calling to do the work for him. He says in verse 27, again, God has chosen the foolish things to confound or confuse the wise. He chooses the weak things to confound the things that are strong or mighty. The base things, which means um, of no, no names, basically. The, the low birth people, the ones that came from nowhere. That's what that means. The base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, uh, basically uh, the things that nobody expects. He says those are the things that bring to not or bring to an end the things that are. Those are the difference makers. The things that nobody expects. The people that nobody saw coming. That, and he says, and here's the reason in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So stop assuming that you have to be something to make a difference. Stop assuming, assuming young person, that just because you can't talk in front of people, God can't use you to make a difference for him. Stop assuming that just because you're not as smart as somebody else that God can't use you. Stop assuming that you may be, well, I'm awkward socially. We're all a little awkward socially, okay? Stop assuming that just because you're not comfortable in a certain situation or with certain people or you didn't come from a good home life, you weren't raised in a Christian home or you don't even know what you're doing, you're new to all this. Stop assuming that just because you come from nothing that God can't use you, that's actually who he's looking for. Stop assuming you don't have something to offer God. Well, really, you don't have anything to offer God, but that's what he's looking for. According to these verses and all through the Bible, you can see it all the time. You can actually accomplish more for God's glory if as a foolish or weak vessel you submit yourself to the Lord to work through you. See, in the end, I really believe the biggest lesson tonight is that God doesn't limit usefulness based on ability. He doesn't look at the ones that have all the ability and say, those are the ones I want. He looks at the ones that are willing to submit and surrender and just be a vessel. And that's George Scott. You know, some of the most talented people I've ever met did the least for God because they trusted in their ability instead of God's. But some of the people, some of the most average vessels I've ever met, and I'm not one to judge. I'm not, I don't want to be judgy tonight. But some of the most average vessels I've ever met did more than I ever thought anybody could. 
Because when they place themselves in the master's hands for him to do what he wants to do with them, there's a much higher ceiling for that vessel to make a difference because God has no ceiling. There's no limit to what God can do. So for us to say, I can do this, is the ultimate slap in the face of God's glory. For us to just simply say, I am nothing, and you are everything, and I give myself to you, I surrender all that I am to you to use however you will, and I may have an ability here or there, but I don't even want to focus on those, God. You just use me however you want. See, the most influential things about you, what I learned this week from observing George Scott's life, the most influential things about you are likely not found in your God-given talents. See, a lot of us trust in the things we're good at and think that's the, that's the ticket. That's how God's going to use me, those God-given talents. But it will more likely be in some area in which you just choose to submit yourself to God and let him transform your life in that he uses you. For instance, if you say, please enable me to be faithful because I'm not. Or please empower me to have a good spirit because I'm pretty critical, God. Or please help me to be a giver because that's just not natural for me. Or please give me the grace to be a good witness or to be an influence to the next generation because I'm just not very confident. That's not my strength. Let him grow you in the areas in which you feel the weakest because according to 1 Corinthians 1, that's how he accomplishes the most. See, let him grow you in those areas because your greatest difference will come in the areas of character, not talent. See, character is not something you're born with. At least, well, none of my kids have been born with it. And I don't think most children are. You have to teach them character. But your, so your greatest difference, God, doesn't, God is not looking for you to make your big, leave your biggest mark with the areas that you're already good in. He's looking to transform some areas of your life. And make you influential in those areas. Character. See, character development is something any of us can choose. You can be as faithful as you choose to be. You can be as giving as you want to be. You can be as perpetuating to the next generation as you desire to be. Anybody can have a great spirit if you choose it. Anybody can be a family man if they simply choose to be. You see these things? It's about character, making a choice. And I believe that that's how God uses us the most. And yet we often lean on what's easy or most natural. So tonight, ask God to help you grow in an area that would give you great, the greatest influence instead of an area in which you have the greatest comfort. So you might see him allow you to leave a mark like a man like, named George Scott. Marks of a man that made a difference. Well, there's no reason the difference maker can't be you. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.